everybody. Uh, we're continuing our journey through Exodus. Uh, so we will be looking at Exodus 18 uh, this morning. If you want to flip back to that, that was page 58 in the Pew Bible, Exodus 18. <clears throat> well, a little bit of background. As a 40-year-old man, Moses had fled Egypt by himself into the wilderness of the Arabic Peninsula, a refugee fleeing from the death penalty that was hanging over his head. You see, Moses, a Hebrew man, he'd been raised as a prince of Egypt in Pharaoh's royal palace, but he'd become deeply troubled by the oppressed and impoverished place of his own people, slaves, the Hebrews, and he tried to do something about it. And seeing an Egyptian slave driver beating a Hebrew slave, Moses intervened, killing the Egyptian and hiding his corpse in the sand. He thought he might get away with it. But his crime became known, and Pharaoh tried to kill him. But Moses fled. And he went to live amongst the Midianites, Now, the Midianites were distant relatives, descendants of Abraham, but not through his first wife, Sarah, nor through his concubine, Hagar, but through the second wife that Abraham took after Sarah had died, and her name was Keturah. The Midianites were descended from Abraham through Keturah. And the Midianites, they lived in the northwestern top corner of the Arabic peninsula in the territory that today is Saudi Arabia, just south of Jordan and Israel. And uh, there, Moses meets the family of Jethro, who has seven daughters. Um, Jethro is a priest. He's the priest of Midian. And presumably, Jethro is the priest in charge of whatever pagan gods or goddesses were worshipped in that area. Uh, Jethro welcomes Moses into his household. And Moses marries Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, and they have a son, Gershom, which the word Gershom sounds like the Hebrew word for alien there. For Moses said, I have become an alien living in a foreign land. Then, of course, um, there's, you know, as you may remember, there's the whole burning bush episode, and Moses knows that God is calling him back to Egypt, um, and uh, he has to leave, and, of course, he has to ask for his father-in-law's permission in in whose house he's living, and so he goes, and he asks for permission to leave, and he's given permission and a blessing. And Moses took Zipporah and Gershom back uh, to Egypt with him, and they were with him the whole time. The, the name of Moses' second son, uh, Eliezer, meaning God is my helper, for we are told, Moses said, God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Well, actually, that, that name tells us straight away, doesn't it, that this second son was actually born after the Exodus. In other words, this baby boy at the time of Exodus 18, he's only about three months old. It means that Zipporah, apart from anything else, when she walked through the Red Sea, she was heavily pregnant. 
And now that Moses, they've been out of Egypt for about two or three months, and, and the Israelites are actually, again, actually in the neighborhood of Midian, well, Zipporah and the kids go to visit the grandparents for a short stay, probably something in the order of, of weeks. And at the end, Jethro sees his daughter and grandsons safely back to Moses. Jethro, Zipporah, Gershom, and little baby Eliezer arrive. And the story thereafter can be divided into two scenes. In scene one, there is a family reunion with a conversion. Very exciting stuff. And in scene two, Jethro sees how Moses is managing things and introduces important changes to his management strategy, to his leadership style. Scene one sets the stage for scene two by building up Jethro in prestige in order that we might be prepared for what happens next, which is Jethro giving our exalted leader, Moses the prophet, some words of advice. This escalation in prestige of Jethro happens in a number of ways. Firstly, Jethro is repeatedly referred to as Moses' father-in-law. Now, from an English language perspective, we may feel that we only really need to be told once. In verse 1, after that, oh, in verse 1, it tells us Jethro is, is Moses' father-in-law. And after that, we feel that actually we don't need to be told again. We've got it. Uh, yep, got it. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. You don't need to labor the point. But actually, the point is labored. Across the whole of the chapter, Jethro is referred to as Moses' father-in-law 13 times. And by name, only seven times. Um, in, in my late teenage years, when my older brother and younger sister, we were, all three of us were at uni together at the same time, my, my brother Frank um, was a somewhat larger-than-life figure at, at least in my mind. And uh, he was well-known, and he was a very good-looking medical student and extremely popular. And I got into the habit, perhaps, perhaps naturally enough, of including the fact that I was Frank Daly's brother whenever I introduced myself to people I knew knew my brother. Embarrassingly, however, once or twice, I introduced myself as Frank Daly's brother to girls without actually giving them my name at all. As though Frank Daly's brother was all they needed to know about me. Likewise, well, in a somewhat likewise fashion, the father-in-law of Moses becomes the usual way of referring to this man. He is important because of his relationship with Moses, but more than that, he is Moses' elder, his superior, a man to whom Moses must show the proper respect. And the proper respect is exactly what Moses does show him. In verse 7, we're told that, that Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. Now, in Middle Eastern cultures then and still today, when an important person comes to visit, you go out to meet them. And the more important they are, the further you go, 
to welcome them. The um, <clears throat> American uh, Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey, who's lived most of his life in the Middle East, uh, he lived in southern Egypt in the early 60s. And he writes in one of his books about a time when President Nasser, at the height of his popularity, visited his town. And he says that thousands of people walked out more than 10 miles out of town to greet President Nasser. And once he arrived, it was required that all of the cars in the, the presidential uh, procession, it was required that they all turn their engines off so that the townsfolk could tie ropes to the bumper bars and pull them the last 10 miles into town. This was a gesture of honor to this great man. And such actions honor the visitor, but actually also Honor is brought to the city by way of an important figure coming to visit. And Moses lived in such a world of honor-shame relationships. Public honor is the key to everything. Moses honors Jethro publicly, and Jethro brings honor to the camp by coming to visit. Moses' public honor of his father-in-law has established him as his elder and superior. Likewise, when Jethro leaves at the end of the chapter, Moses traveled out with him. What exactly the distance, we don't know, but a long walk with him to to honor his visit with prestige and authority. And Jethro disappears from view in verse 27, never again to be mentioned in the Bible. The third thing that escalates Jethro's authority in our mind is his conversion. In, in, in verse 8, Moses does what is natural for anyone who's been saved by God. He gives his testimony. And Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for the sake of Israel and all the hardships that they'd encountered along the way and how Yahweh had delivered them from them all. And Jethro, it says, was thrilled about all the goodness that Yahweh had done for Israel, that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. And what Jethro says specifically is really interesting. Verse 10, he says, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, thereby causing the people to be delivered from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods by this thing which he did to them, to those who'd acted presumptuously. And what's happening is that Jethro has responded to Moses' testimony by making the good confession. He, He praises Yahweh. The the personal name of God, here translated for us in our English Bibles for various reasons as Lord, all in capital letters. But that's God's personal name, Yahweh. And to know His name and to call upon His name is to belong to Him by way of covenant. And Jethro spells out the substance of his belief, which is identical to the true meaning of those miracles. That being that Yahweh is indeed the Most High God, sovereignly in charge over every other conceivable force or authority, in the, be it in the spiritual, physical, or human realms. 
Yahweh reigns. The Lord reigns. And what this means for us is that Jethro has been converted. Now he knows who God is, and he knows him by his personal name, Yahweh. And so we are right to understand that in Old Testament terms, Yahweh is a saved person, someone who belongs to the people of God, someone who belongs to God, someone who has responded to the gospel of God's saving work in history with joy, praise, and faith. And this idea that Jethro has been converted, it's underscored by the fact that he then makes a sacrifice to Yahweh. It's an act of worship, a burnt offering, and around that offering came together a worship service, a holy meal consumed with the people of God in the presence of God. So then, on the basis of these three things then, we are now ready to listen carefully to what Jethro has to say. He is Moses' father-in-law, his elder, his superior. He is welcomed in by Moses on that basis. And he is a worshiper of Yahweh, someone who belongs to the covenant people of God. So Jethro has entered the scene, perhaps as a God-fearer, definitely as a religious man, but not someone who knows God personally. And he departs in verse 27 for an unknown future, but as a converted man. And actually, that that should give us some pause for thought. You know, he leaves Israel, a converted man. That should give us some pause for thought because as human beings, we inevitably assume, at least from time to time, that God's saving purposes in the world are coextensive with the human structures that arise from his saving purposes in the world. So here, in this text, the the narrator reminds us again that God has people, saved people, who aren't biologically descended from Jacob. Biological outsiders who are nevertheless spiritual insiders. They belong to God. And the, the Hebrews, they regularly reminded themselves, hey, we're God's chosen people. And they were right. But they often forgot that God had chosen people who weren't Hebrews, even though their scriptures regularly demonstrated that to be true. And I I think in the same way, as Christians, we, we regularly assume, don't we? We regularly assume that God's saving work in the world is coextensive with the structures that we are most familiar with. I've I've heard people argue that you can't be Roman Catholic and be saved. As well as, I've heard people declare that you can't be saved unless you're Roman Catholic. Very occasionally, very occasionally, I come across people who truly believe that only Anglicans are saved. Regularly, I come across people who believe that no Anglicans are saved. And I occasionally hear non-Christians say, hey, you Christians, you Christians believe that only Christians go to heaven, don't you? Is that right? To which, of course, the answer is no. That's not right. 
that, that's not what the Bible teaches. What Christians believe is what the Bible teaches uh, is, is uh, that Christians believe that there is only one Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, known to us as the Christ. And we believe that he saves whoever the heck he wants to save. So if you want to be saved today, tomorrow, or forever, you need to start a conversation with him, Jesus of Nazareth. There is only one Savior. Because he keeps on saving people, bringing people who perhaps are already religious, who perhaps already believe in God. But Jesus brings people into a personal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Converted, these ex-God-fearers now know God's personal name, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. So what we've done is we've established that, that Jethro is saved. And scene one closes and scene two opens with the words, the next day. The next day, Jethro sees what it is that keeps his son-in-law busy all the time. Moses takes a seat and from dawn to dusk, a crowd of people come to him needing his attention for this matter or that matter. And verse 13 tells us that Moses was acting as judge for the people. What that means is that Moses was acting as the final authority, not just with respect to legal matters or legal disputes, but actually as the final authority with respect to just about everything that needs some kind of authoritative decision. Sure, Moses was acting as Supreme Court judge. His legal ruling was final. But Moses was also acting as family doctor. His advice was followed. Moses was also acting as priest and pastor. For he knew God and he knew what pleased God. But Moses was also acting as Google. He knew the answers when no one else did. I mean, after all, he's the only guy there who's had a grammar school education, educated as a prince of Egypt, while everybody else around him now was baking bricks. And under Moses' leadership, the people of God have received water when they were thirsty. They've been saved from both the hand of the Egyptians and the Amicalites. They've received food when supplies of food ran out. No wonder the people of God have such confidence in him. This guy really gets things done. But, astonishingly, perhaps even blasphemously, what are we to do with this? It's just as well his authority has been escalated because Jethro's judgment on the situation is an emphatic, not good. He says in verse 18 to Moses, You will surely wither, both you and this people that are with you, because of the severe load on you. And that's a really interesting judgment, isn't it? I mean, I'm I'm not surprised to hear him say to Moses, you're going to wear yourself out, pal. I mean, I would have expected that. That's obvious. To which, of course, Moses may have replied something along the lines of, yeah, but if you want the job done right, you've got to do it yourself. And, you know, hey, I really like hard work. And I've got this kind of activist religious thing happening here. And, you know, it's by this sort of hard work that we must all serve the Lord. And, you know, as a servant, I'm just so prepared to go the extra mile, blah, blah, blah. 
that's not what Jethro said. He told Moses that this would wither. In other words, inflict a slow and lingering death upon not just himself, but also on his people. Being the very center of everything may have been good for Moses' ego, but it was very bad for his health, and it was very bad for the health of the people God had given him to look after. Jethro's judgment, not good, Moses. Ultimately, Moses' job is to make himself unnecessary. Well, um, Hannah read the passage uh, for us, so, so we know what happened. Jethro proposed a system of delegation, appoint a system of leaders, grouping folks into groups of tens, fifties, hundreds, and then thousands, disputes, questions of ethics or lifestyle or, or what's right or what's wrong. They, they can ascend up the ladder as far as they need to with only the most difficult questions actually landing on Moses' desk. That's the plan, but it's worth taking a little bit of time to look at some of the details. The, the first part of the plan is for Moses to get clear in his own mind what it means to be a leader of God's people. And verse 19 says something like this in the Hebrew. Verse 19 says something like, Now hear my voice by which I'm counseling you, and let God be with you. You must be for the people in front of God, and you must bring the things to God. The, the first act of leadership is intercessory prayer. Moses, if he is to be a good leader of God's people, must, as the first priority, spend time with God in the presence of God, wherein he will bring their things before him. This is Moses' priestly ministry. In very general terms, a priestly ministry is one where you represent people in the presence of God. Now, <clears throat> the word translated disputes in verse 19 in the Pew Bible is a Hebrew word, damar. And that Hebrew word, damar, is usually translated as word or speech or message. The Greek equivalent in the New Testament is the word logos. Um, but this word can also be translated as thing. Um, and the word appears 11 times in 15 verses. It is the key word of scene two and dominates the passage. Sometimes in our English pew Bibles, the word is translated as disputes or cases. But on a number of occasions, it's not translated at all. For example, in our pew Bibles, in verse 14, has Jethro asking Moses, what is this you are doing for the people? Whereas in the Hebrew, Jethro has asked Moses, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Now, I point this out because the translators have to go somewhere with this vague and broad-meaning word, and they translate it ultimately into very good English, which is their job. But what they've done is they've generated the slight sense that the only questions brought to Moses were of a legal variety. 
But actually, it was all kinds of things that were brought to Moses. Legal uncertainties, ethical problems, family tensions, lifestyle questions, health concerns, food concerns. So, for example, verses 15 and 16 read very literally, And Moses said to his father-in-law, The people come to me to seek God. Because when there's a thing, it's coming to me. And I judge between a man and his friend, and I know the statutes of God and his laws. So Jethro's answer, verse 19, is you must be for the people in front of God, and you must bring their things to God. First duty of Christian leadership, pray for your people. Second duty of Christian leadership, teach your people. Verse 20, Jethro continues, and you are to warn them of the statutes and the laws and you are are to cause them to be known, the ways they are to walk by and the things that they are to do. This is Moses' prophetic ministry. In very general terms, a prophetic ministry is any ministry where you represent God in the presence of people. That's a prophetic ministry, broadly speaking. For Moses, this is going to mean teaching the people about who God is as the creator of the heavens and the earth and what he's done. His saving works in history as they reveal his power and character, as well as his laws, his statutes, his decrees, and his commandments. He is to teach the people. A third detail worth looking at is the nature of delegation. Uh, Jethro counsels Moses to select men, men who have four characteristics. Firstly, they are to be capable men or, as it is in the Hebrew, men of strength. Moses is looking for men with a track record when it comes to being able to take responsibility and get things done, both usefully and successfully. Such men are to be selected from, quote, all the people. In other words, they are to be representative of every tribe and clan. Secondly, they are to be people who fear God. Now, the the Hebrew concept of the fear of of the Lord is about behavior, not about emotions. Men who fear God are men who obey God. That's what the phrase means. They are to be, thirdly, trustworthy men, or, as the Hebrew, Hebrew puts it, men of truth. Moses is looking for men who tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And they are to be, fourthly, men who hate dishonest gain. The the, the whole system that Jethro is advocating depends upon finding leaders who can resist the temptation of bribery and the corruption that leads to. And of course, in the 30 centuries since or more, 34, whatever it is, in all of human history, And in all of human affairs, we now know that nothing brings poverty and misery as efficiently as bribery and corruption. These are the four qualifications set for Moses by which he may select leaders. 
with respect to Moses' prophetic teaching ministry, Moses will have to start by teaching his selected leaders. He will have to teach them all about God, who he is and what he's done and how we are to live in response in order that they can teach others, in order that they can judge the things effectively. Well, Jethro proposed it. Moses accepted it. The people of God implemented it. And it changed everything for the better. Um, Last night at the um, 4 p.m. service, Tim Bowles speculated that Jethro's true motive was saving his daughter's marriage. But either way, this changed everything. No more worries about withering. I guess, actually, the question for us is, how does this passage speak to us today? Well, in its essential nature, Christian leadership has not changed. Jethro gave us the pattern, and whenever this pattern has been lost, the church has had to rediscover it. So that leads me to the question, how are we doing as a church? And uh, in my first draft of this sermon, I outlined all of the many and different ways in which my own understanding of my job and my own understanding of our ministry here at St. Barnabas conform to this pattern. But then I realized that what I'd written was a defense of my ministry and our ministry as a church, and I thought, well, actually, there are probably better ways of ending a sermon than by defending myself. Perhaps a better way of concluding this sermon might be to say that, actually, I don't really know how we're doing. I don't really know how well I have really heard from Jethro what the Holy Spirit was saying. When I'd been here at St. Barnabas for about 12 months, somebody said to me, Stephen, you're not very good at delegation. At the time, I didn't know if that person was right or not. I still don't. I don't have that insight. I'm going to need help. Um, what, this, what this passage says to me, it reminds me of a deep and important truth, which is this. I'm not serving God's people well until I'm working well at making myself unnecessary. The necessary pastor will wither and his people along with him. What, what is this passage saying to you today? Are you working to make yourself unnecessary in your ministry here at St. Barnabas or at home as a parent or in your workplace? Are you working to make yourself unnecessary? If not, you might just be doing your home group members or your children or your students or your peers at work a profound disservice rather than a service. How has this passage judged you today? To to one degree or another, Jethro's judgment on you, on me, and on us might still be not good. So let's pray. Here's a short prayer I prepared previously. If you'd like to pray it, pray it along in your heart silently too. Um, Father, 
by your Holy Spirit, who is at work through your word, which is living and active, and who is at work through your people. May he help us to learn more about ministry as we consider how the Holy Spirit spoke through Jethro. Father, when praying for those under our care, teaching them the things of God, whether that be publicly or privately, in season and out of season. Lord, discerning those who you are raising up as leaders and giving them appropriate authority and delegating and letting go and letting them have a go. Lord, please help us to do these things well. Dear Jesus, you are the head. We are the body. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.